What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I think consumers can tell that. I think they can they can smell like a brand new company that's built on, you know, artificial growth hormones or venture capital money and it's just a it's a construct. Uh, that's all about marketing. And when you really get to the product that nobody really cared about the product, they cared about the marketing and customer acquisition. We started this company because we care deeply about product. That's what we do every Thursday. John mentioned the design meeting. We are designers. We design everything in-house. We don't go to trade shows and buy things. We don't go to other countries and find factories and pull things off the factory floor. So I think there's an authenticity and a, and a sort of dedication to the, the product that you don't find at, at some of these other places. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Ligorio Chafkin. Today's episode See Business Problems as Creative Challenges. Maurice Blanks and John Christakos were undergrads when they met in art class. Maurice and their friend Charlie Laser were preparing to become architects. Before long, it became clear that they all shared a dream of starting their own design firm. But that was years and years before they actually began. And when they did begin, they designed modern, clean, not going to break the bank furniture. Their company, Blue Dot, launched in 1997 to bring modern design to America and make it welcoming to everyone before Ikea was so ubiquitous here. They were designing all their own furnishings in-house in Minneapolis, but being two architects and a sculptor, building a business from scratch wasn't always easy. But it did work, and perhaps in part because they applied their artist's eye and their design thinking to their business structure and to their everyday problems. I spoke with John and Maurice, two of the company's three founders who are still running it more than two decades later. Blue Dot is about 200 people globally with stores in a dozen cities and its headquarters and design studio still in Minneapolis. But before there was Blue Dot, there was a backpacking trip that may have inspired it all. Well, Charlie and I started by, uh, we lived in Japan for, I don't know, maybe four or five months of the, of the year. Maurice was still stateside then, and we were teaching Japanese executives English and doing other stuff, uh, having fun, living in, I was living in Kyoto. And then Maurice joined us. We went where Thailand, India, Burma. We eventually split off, went our own ways at the very end. Maurice went to, you went to England, right? And I, I went to Egypt. Right. It was great, but, but I think that's where we, where we really got to know each other, the three of us, you know, the, what eventually became the founders of the company. And Charlie was also, you know, into art and architecture and design when we were in college. And it was really on that trip that we kind of, you know, our minds kind of melded in some way about design, our way kind of seeing the world in a similar way. I think we were all obsessed with kind of the beauty of design in humble, simple things. You know, that's we talked about, like it's a gate in Japan or a, a manhole cover in New Delhi or something, but just the these kind of simple unsung heroes of design that we saw around the world and really got excited about that in a way that was kind of really energizing. And I think that's the first 
uh, early seeds of Blue Dot were started there. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, how much that bonding over design um, and and architecture and styles did inform the business. Do you remember having any conversations during that trip that had a path to the founding of Blue Dot that you can connect to the actual company? Or do you think it just kind of planted the seeds? I seem to remember a, a specific conversation in a very specific place. And I, I, I don't know if I've created this memory or if it's real. Maurice, maybe you can see if you remember it. But we were in, in Ladakh, way up near the Tibetan plateau. And sitting in that guest house, drinking chai, sort of fantasizing about like, wouldn't it be cool if we had our own design company someday? Um, not really fleshing it out in any great detail, just the notion of pursuing your passion for your life, basically, uh, in your career. Yeah. Maurice, do you remember it that way? Yeah. I don't remember the, the conversation. I remember that guest house. I feel like we spent a lot of time there uh, for some reason. I don't remember if we were adjusting the altitude or something. But there, <laughs> there are lots of long days and conversations, but we did really talk about how could we do something creative for a living and how could we do, you know, make a living doing something creative. Uh, so that was definitely the beginnings. And I remember when we started to really talk about the company in the sort of the early to mid nineties, we didn't, we still didn't know what it was going to be. We, we, we didn't know what the kind of the focus was going to be, what the subject matter was going to be. And, and there were early times when we talked about it was going to be an accessories company. We were going to do picture frames and desktop accessories. And so we had an idea about the kind of the nature of the company, what it would be like, what the spirit of the company would be. And that's consistent with what the company is today, I would say. It was just, what was the subject matter? And eventually we arrived at furniture. Ah, interesting. I like that you mentioned the spirit of a company um, and that that may have come first. I also love, I've never heard that altitude sickness may have influenced the beginning of a company before. That's a new one. <laughs> um, John, do you do you remember the the ideas for the spirit and, and what that turned into over the years before we talk about what you actually made first? Yeah, we, you know, we've, Luckily, we've saved all these um, faxes that we used to send one another. It was pre-email. Wow. And uh, and we lived in different cities. I was here in Minneapolis, and uh, Maurice and Charlie were in different cities. And we would just sort of spitball back and forth about what this imaginary company would be all about. But from the very beginning, I think we we wanted it to be humble and straightforward and friendly and welcoming. And we saw modern design at the time uh, as being a quite an elitist field and an elitist business, if you will, um, very high priced, only accessible in certain showrooms if you knew the secret handshake. And, you know, it was really before Ikea had really made a big splash in the United States. And so, yeah, we just, we felt that was, well, that was not us personally. And we just wanted our brand and the spirit of Blue Dot to be straightforward, humble, uh, nobody's too cool for school, inviting everybody to our party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. And Maurice, what was what was the thing that made you guys actually take the leap, actually quit your jobs and start Blue Dot? I think I think John was just bored in his old job. That was probably the best. That was probably <laughs> the biggest reason because at the time Charlie and I were both practicing architects, and John had kind of gone up into marketing. I was actually had clients. I had my own firm in Chicago at the time. I had a pretty sticky situation, and I think John was ready to do something more creative. You know, I think he'd paid back the student loans maybe and he was ready to try something. So he just said, I'm going to jump. And when you guys are ready, you know, jump with me. So that's when it all started. And what was the very first 
thing you made? What was the first product or group of products that you worked on and um, and mm. actually sold? It's hard to remember that. Well, maybe the stackable files, Maurice, was the very very first one. Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's hard to define what it was. I mean, I think to answer the question about the collection was really it was a we launched the company essentially at a trade show in New York. 1997. Uh, and so it was probably what, John, a dozen products maybe. So you had a whole collection to start your first kind of season, your first year in 97. Right. Yeah. Great. And what did, what did that collection sort of do or accomplish or look like? It looks pretty similar to, I mean, in, in general vibe to what we, what we even currently do now, actually a couple of the pieces are still in our collection today, uh, that were launched then we intentionally made it you know, not just three things or four things. We wanted to look like a real business coming out of the gate, even though, you know, if you peel back the curtain, we were probably anything but a business at that, at that stage. So I think it was about 15 or 16 pieces and it ranged from small things like magazine racks that retailed for 39 bucks to a big shelving unit called the Chicago eight box, which we still sell, which at the time was, I think like $1,800. So, and across different categories, as well. So desks, storage, coffee tables. We wanted to come out feeling like a real company and a real cohesive brand. And I think we did. I mean, our success at that first trade show was more than we could have ever hoped for. That's great. So it didn't take too long before you, in your own minds and hearts too, were a real brand. No, it happened like that that day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we literally had to stop at the I guess it was Kinko's at the time on the way to the trade show. We didn't have any order forms. And so we kind of had to detour and quickly like print them and take them with us. And it was really great how excited retailers were by what we were offering because we were perceived that there was this gap in the market between sort of the low end and the high end, you know, between sort of Ikea and the high end Europeans. It was reassuring to see that the retailers really responded to that because they were looking for product that was modern, but was more kind of accessible, more affordable. Than that. So it was very exciting. Yeah, that's great. Um, what kind of retailers were you in at first? Well, it was a mix. We had everybody from, I remember like Neiman Marcus actually sold some furniture back then, but they had a, another division. I can't remember. What was it called? Was it Horchow? Yeah. Crate and Barrel was interested in what we were doing. Oh, we sold mostly to independent sort of modern design shops in, in big cities. So uh, Moss in New York, Zinc Details in San Francisco. These are great sort of independent retailers that bring modern design to their communities. I'm so curious to talk to you about competition since your your business has been around for decades now. And there's just, I, looking back, there's been just kind of waves of different folks um, kind of getting into exactly what you do, right? There's, like you mentioned, Ikea. Um, now there's Ikea in many major cities, not just on the coast. Then then all of a sudden there came like CB2 and West Elm and these folks doing more affordable design sort of for the masses. And now in the last few years, I mean, we've seen all of these direct-to-consumer companies pop up with, you know, here's your bed frame. You can assemble it in your home. It's very modern and sleek. Here's your mattress. Here's your X. Here's your Y. I don't know which, which one to start with, but if, if you could talk just a little bit about dealing with these waves of competition through the years and what your mindset has been when you see a new thing kind of coming into your your space, because you've kind of stayed the course over the last few decades, right? You've continued to do the same thing, which is great. And, and it's kind of rare to see. Um, but so what, what's been your mindset around those, the, those kind of encroachments, <laughs> Maurice? Well, I guess I would first start by saying that we started the company 
with the idea that we were going to be a wholesaler. Huh. We, we went to a trade show and the idea was to attract retailers and retail accounts and we were going to sell wholesale to them and that was the idea. And then we pivoted really starting in the kind of the mid-2000s to more of a direct consumer business. And now that's through our stores and our website now is most of what the business is. And that's where, as you point out, we compete with all these other places. Yeah, we have stayed the course and the company is still the same. This ethos that John described earlier about simplicity and humility, those are all still core values that you know, we think are very consistent today. I think consumers can tell that. I think they can they can smell like a brand new company that's built on you know artificial growth hormones or venture capital money, and it's just a it's a construct uh, that's all about marketing. And when you really get to the product, that nobody really cared about the product; they cared about the marketing and customer acquisition. We started this company because we care deeply about product. That's what we do every Thursday. John mentioned the design meeting. We are designers. We design everything in house. We don't go to trade shows and buy things. We don't go to other countries and find factories and pull things off the factory floor. So I think there's an authenticity and a, and a sort of dedication to the, the product that you don't find at, at some of these other places. Yeah. And there's that, there's like a certain wholesomeness to staying in Minneapolis too, right? And knowing you're a Midwest built company. Yeah. We feel lucky to be here. I mean, as designers, it's different scene to be in New York or San Francisco or other places where I think you're looking over your shoulder a little bit more. We can we can put our heads down and, and do our work out here and you know share it with the world in, in a more mellow environment. Tell me about the decision to to go directly to consumers, to open up your first store and to to try to market yourself in that way and get your brand in front of people, not just your, your furnishings. Um, was that a huge decision for you? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think starting wholesale was a good way for us to get going. We, you know, we didn't have to invest in bricks and mortar stores. E-commerce was like not even a thing, like barely a thing then. Maurice and I joke about the, the the term digitally native. We didn't have the option of being digitally native. And, you know, anybody starting a company today would be silly not to be digitally native. So, um, yeah, it sounds like you were fax machine native. <laughs> yeah, right. But my, my point, my point simply is like that, that's, that's just the world we live in now. Of course, you'd be digitally native if you're starting a consumer brand at the moment. But we realized that our growth was going to be limited if it was going to be through these independent retailers, because there's only one, maybe two in every given city. They carry multiple lines. They wouldn't carry everything that we would sell or we would make. Our work was Presented well, but not always presented the way we would want it presented cohesively all together as often other stuff was on it. So we just felt like to control our brand and the full experience and the vision that we had initially when we started Blue Dot, the best way to see that come to life is if we were to have our own stores and our own. At that point, we were already online. I mean, in the mid 2000s, we had an e-commerce business going. So really, it was this, it was the decision to get into bricks and mortar retail, opening our first store in Soho. And. 2008, probably the worst time ever to open a retail store. But wow. Yeah. <laughs> I think officially, officially the, the worst timing on a lease, I think, in maybe modern <laughs> retail history, because I think we signed it in, but what was it? Sort of summer of summer of 2008 or, or it was even like yeah. spring, maybe even right. We opened in December of 2008 and, but the store actually did well. And uh, we, we were in that store for 10 years. The, the landlord didn't know who we were, so they insisted on a on a twelve month security deposit. So we had to pay a year's rent at security deposit. Wow! And how did that store go? I mean, uh, how how was you know actually filling the space and getting your brand out there in front of people? It was a great learning experience. We, you know, our collection had been designed really one piece at a time. Again, we're designers, so 
every object is a precious thing, but we weren't really designing those pieces or even the palette and the colors and the materials with a thought of how it all worked together in one space and in one store. So when we put it all together in that first store in Soho, we didn't have a lot of categories. We didn't have rugs. We didn't have lighting. We didn't have a lot of small accessories. So it was, you know, not the greatest experience that we don't think to start with, but it did inform all these new categories that we needed to get into and needed to develop new designs for, which is super fun for us as designers just to have great fun stuff to work on. Right. You just got new projects. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, I mean, it was a great, you know, people say what, we've asked the question a lot of what inspires you, you know, as designers. And that kind of a challenge was super inspiring was to suddenly have this, this whole different way of looking at not an object like John said so much, but trying to look at them more as collections and assortments and how do all these kids play together nicely. What are some of the terms or phrases or ideas that define the brand of Blue Dot to you? Simplicity and humility, I would say those are kind of the two core values. And then humor is, is a piece of that. And, and humor has always been a part of the company because we're, we're kind of silly ourselves. And you know we want to be at a company that's fun, but also humor was a way to be kind of more welcoming and more disarming. So as John said earlier, we were reacting against sort of this very serious, elitist, kind of high-minded modern design. And, and humor was just a way to kind of break that down a little bit and, and be more welcoming. But really, those are kind of the simplicity, humility. What am I missing, John? I mean, creativity is the other, you know, really, really central piece of Blue Dot, you know, where our purpose is to inspire a more creative way of living. And, and creativity is at the core of of what we do. As Marie said, we we create literally everything that we sell. And we like to share that creative process with our customers and our followers, bringing them into the studio, showing sketches, so showing how these things come to life so they understand where their stuff comes from. It's sort of a home furnishings equivalent of farm to table. We're not just a retailer who's slinging stuff. You know, we're actually creating it. This idea about creativity and design, it extends beyond just the product. I think it's really important for us and we talk about it a lot that we like to see all of our business problems as design problems, as, as creative challenges, you know, whether that's in finance or whether it's in the warehouse or fulfillment. We don't put, you know, design, again, is not put on a pedestal, really. It's not, it's not something precious that happens in one room in the whole building and then everybody else is just doing something else. We're all trying to think about creativity. And when we first started kind of planning the business, you know, we had this phrase where we said that we wanted to design the business as carefully as we would design a product. So you know, seeing the business itself as a, as a design problem. The other place that I think creativity really comes into play is with collaboration, both within the company and with photographers and graphic designers and architects. You know, we're doing all these stores across the country with local architects who are really talented and collaborating with them. And we, you know, we just get really excited by collaborating with creative people. When we come back, I'll talk with John and Maurice about the creative ways they build bonds with customers. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
we at Inc. love to talk about kind of the nuts and bolts of, of managing and designing your teams and structuring companies well. How did you kind of turn the designer's eye toward that process when growing Blue Dot? Well, I think that's the, you know, I think as designers, it was just, that's just how we saw the world. I think we saw it as a design problem. And I think we sort of chuckle when, when we hear the phrase design thinking, you know, that has sort of come on the scene since we started Blue Dot, you know, long after we graduated from college and, and design schools. And we're sort of like, well, is there another way to think? Uh, you know, isn't that how you solve problems? You, you figure out who the user is, what the problem is. You think of a variety of solutions. You try small solutions. If they work, you roll them out. I, I guess that's just how we were and that's how we saw the world. So maybe it was more about, you know, designers starting a business than it was about a business person starting a design company, right? I mean, I think there's kind of different different ways that they kind of start and end. Yeah, yeah. What about what, what about you, John? What do you think about that? Like, how how did you take the design eye? And I mean, maybe it's hard to see outside of your own perspective. Certainly, um, you you would know you were kind of raised into that design thinking. But how how does how could other people apply that to their business? And and kind of what went right there? Well, I think we had a lot of decisions that we made along the way, and I guess you could talk about them as design decisions or business design decisions. You know, we decided not to take a lot of venture capital, for example. So we joke that, you know, we'd rather be a mule than a unicorn, that, you know, we'd rather control this business and own the majority of this business than be under the pressure of outside investors who, you know, you've got to be the next Amazon of this or the next Netflix of that, or, you know, we don't have any of those pressures. So we can plug away at our mission uh, with a long-term view without these sort of short-term pressures. You know, we look at brands like Patagonia as just great examples and models for us of sticking true to their core mission without these outside influences. So that's one very important decision that was made early on that we've we've stuck with. Another is we are different than most furniture retailers and companies in that we keep virtually everything in stock. Given the global logistics challenges at the moment, uh, we're not in the best position as we normally are. But to do that, we um, limit our choices. So, you know, you can't get our sofas in 100 different fabrics. If you did, you'd have to wait eight weeks, 12 weeks. Everybody's got a furniture nightmare story of waiting for their sofa forever. We have five amazing fabrics that really will cover most people's needs. And we winnow it down for you to five great choices. And, you know, if one of those works for you, it's in stock and it's available to you right now. So that's a business design decision that we've made and stuck to. You get lots of pressures along the way to open that up. You know, people will say, well, there's much more opportunity if you offered more choice. And you're like, nope, we're going to stick to our knitting, stay focused. That's a design, that's a business design decision we made, and we're going to um, stick with it. Yeah. And it seems like it will solve a lot of problems too, like that, that customer paradox of choice that people get into when buying home goods. Um, and I'd love to talk to you more about the supply chain issues of this past year and the future year, it looks. But but you mentioned Patagonia. And I, I think there was something interesting built that you built into the business in terms of um, sustainability too, kind of from the beginning. It, it wasn't like your overt mission, but in good design, there is a bit of sustainability sort of baked in. Is that right? I mean, I think Maybe the, the word to kind of get into that is efficiency. We wanted our products to be more affordable than the higher-end competition. And so we had to be super thoughtful about cost as resources. And the fewer resources you use, the, the, the better cost you can get. So whether that meant how much waste you would have left over after you cut out a, a product on, a let's say, a four-by-eight sheet of plywood. You know, so what's the yield of that product? Or can it flat pack so that it can ship much more efficiently? You can get a lot more in a truck. You can have a lot more on your warehouse. So 
all those things came into play. So as you said, it wasn't, we weren't saying, okay, what's the most sustainable decision on this? We'd say, what's the most economic decision on this? And often it has answered the same questions. Yeah, that's a really smart way of thinking about it. John, you you mentioned your unusual ways of connecting with customers and letting customers kind of into the design process and to see kind of how you're thinking. What ways over the years have you kind of connected with customers in ways that, that might be unusual to other businesses? <laughs> uh, we've done a lot of fun things. Uh, I don't know if I should talk about the swap meet or the a real good chair experiment, the swap meet, which is actually... Uh, how about both? Those okay. are good. <laughs> well, the real good chair experiment was this great thing that we worked with a, a friends of ours that have an amazing agency here in town called Mono. And it was just to celebrate the one-year anniversary of our very first store in New York. And Trash Day in New York is... There's all sorts of stuff out in the street. And a lot of times there's great stuff out in the street. So we took 20 or so of our real good chairs, this sort of iconic chair now that we designed back then, and put just put them on the street in New York, they were all had GPS monitors, tracking devices on the underside of the chair, kind of disguised. And we had camera crews and undercover camera crews to see what would happen. Would people pick these up and take them home? And then a day later, we would we actually knew where they took them because of the GPS monitor. We went and knocked on their door and asked them, you know, to tell us about their experience and why they took this chair. And a short documentary was made about it. And it was early on where these sort of viral marketing kind of things were never done. But what was really cool about that is that we we didn't know what was going to happen. I and mean, it truly was an experiment. We didn't know if anybody would care, but it, it ended up being this really fun event. And then the swap meet is something that we're actually, we kicked back off during the pandemic, but we did it back in the recession of 08 or 09, I think, where business was slow anyways. So we opened up everything that we offer for sale in exchange for barter. So people could propose us to trade for anything that we make. And we got all sorts of interesting offers like a drug-free urine sample in exchange for a lamp or one share of Enron stock in exchange for something. <laughs> so we're doing that now more annually. We did it during the pandemic because everybody was stuck at home and it was a perfect time to do something like that. And it was super fun. Um, so we're doing it again here in just a week or so. And that's like, is that more useful for marketing and just for getting people talking about the brand online? Or is it more useful for, I don't know, attracting like real business? <laughs> I think it's more for us. It's just fun, right? Go ahead, Marie. Did you get any any live animals um, proposed <laughs> <laughs> as trade? Well, we we have there is a llama somewhere out there. Do we get to name it? I forget what what it was. We yeah, we got to name it, and, and I think we get the wool. Uh, we get a sweater made out of the wool from oh, the a, llama. Yeah, right? it's alpaca, alpaca. Yeah, yeah right. we got to name it. So we don't we don't actually own the live being. Um, we also have the rights underneath the shade of a tree in where is that in Utah? Utah. Yeah, Utah. There's yeah. a plaque that says you know Blue Dot has the. The, the the rights perpetual to, right per, perpetual <laughs> rights to be underneath this tree we don't actually own the tree it's like a sort of a, f- a funny kind of fake legal document it's like it's there you, you do not own the property or the tree itself <laughs> one of the one of the best ones was uh, an artist in chicago named An- andrew wright who offered to write us a handwritten note to blue dot letter every day for 365 days and we thought there's no way he's going to follow through with this. So we got to, we got to do this. And he did. And so all during the pandemic, you know, a handwritten note every single day would land here on my desk. We'd scan it into our intranet for the whole company to see. And I intentionally didn't look him up or reach out to him or or anything until the very end. And then um, we got to know one another and, and did this another short little uh, cool little film on him. Oh, that's so neat. I love it. 
And and did you actually like him when it came down to it after reading his letters for a year? <laughs> totally. I felt like, you know, I felt like I knew him so well and his and his wife. And I was driving my son home from college and driving through Chicago. So we stopped and had a had a couple of beers together. And it was it was a weird experience because I, I felt like I knew him unbelievably well. I read 365 letters from him. But, you know, it just really amazing to see that creative spirit of people that are connected to Blue Dot and good humor and fun and community and creativity that comes together as a result of that swap meet was really what makes it special. If, if there's a great marketing rub-off effect, great, but that's really not yeah, the purpose. Yeah, that's great. Um, has, has a customer or employee ever changed either of your minds on something? <laughs> Just not in the last four hours, but a lot. <laughs> I, think, I think it happens all the time. I mean, I think what's you know, one of the great benefits of, of growing a company is that you get all these different folks that come in and you get all these different perspectives. And uh, I mean, I think we are we probably aren't as good as we could be about listening to those other voices, but I think we're getting a lot better at it and realizing how good those decisions can be. You know, when our initial reaction is like, oh, you know, don't, you don't do that. I mean, there was this, I mean, a, a, a kind of funny product example is that sort of velvet as an upholstery fabric is sort of not our jam. Like me and John are sort of, we're just not velvet people. And so the product development team was sort of like, you know, they kept sampling things in velvet and we just sort of like put them over and like kind of walk past them and, you know, not really look at them. And, you know, we eventually said, okay, let's do it. And of course they're massive, you know, tremendously successful. And, and we've really changed our aesthetic. I mean, I see some of this velvet sound. I'm like, oh, that looks really great. So I think that's a product example, but I think those kinds of things happen all the time. That's great, John. Did you think of an example of a time you, you changed your mind? Oh, it happens all the time. No, Maurice gives the the really the great example, but no, we have such a talented team and it's so fun to see all of them bring their unique strengths and skills to the conversation. And we we're different than most designers. And a lot of designers are, you know, on name, Maurice Blank's the designer, John Christakos, the designer, but you know, we don't put any of our individual names on anything that we design because it truly is a team effort and always has been, even from the very, very beginning when it was just, the three of us, but now we have architects, industrial designers, graphic designers, artists, uh, illustrators, everybody kind of uh, weighing in. That's where the magic happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I find it so neat that you are, are two architect designers who who now lead teams. Um, how many employees are you up to? And and I'm so curious, I know this one might take a little bit of thought, but what what is like the weirdest thing you've tried while leading or managing that's actually worked? <laughs> so people wise, what are we, John? Are we about a hundred and fifty in the US or something like that? About two hundred worldwide. Have you tried any odd odd managing tactics or or just things that you, you know, you, you were a little like un undereducated about and, and went for anyway and they were? Oh, that's a good question. I'm sure we have. I'm trying to think. Well, I was just gonna say I think one one thing that that I, I feel like I talk a lot about with with potential hires and recruiting and is it was people ask questions like you know what's what's your leadership style or, or you know what what's it like here and and what, what I usually answer is the thing that's top of mind for me is sort of a calm steady hand on the tiller. I mean we've been through a lot in this company and we've had some near death experiences. I mean not personally but the company itself. Corporate and death, and yes. <laughs> sure, sure. And you know financial challenges and people challenges and all kinds of issues with suppliers and customers and. Uh, but we just kind of stay calm. I think we we know that we'll get to the other side. I mean, I don't know if it's just sort of we have this kind of you know 
confidence in it, or we know we'll sort of work through it, and we have in the past. And uh, so people walk by our offices, and they they know they're not going to see you know somebody running around like throwing their arms around and 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 screaming. Uh, and I think that has a real impact on the on the business overall. The people are sort of like, okay, this is the issue. Let's address it. Let's talk about it. Let's get together and figure out a solution. Uh, so I think that has a definitely has a kind of a overall effect to the business. Yeah, I think uh, picking up on that theme is is a spirit of just optimism. You know, I think you have to be, you know, I sometimes joke that I think my title should be chief optimist. One of our core values is see the glass half full. And you have to be that way because there's so many times where where things <laughs> don't look great or you've got a crisis or you don't know how you're going to get out of a jam, especially early on when you're bootstrapping a company like we did without you know, if I've got $200 million of venture capital, there's not many problems we're going to run into. But, you know, we started the company with $50,000 of our own money. So it was more of a scratch and claw kind of situation for several years. And like Maurice said, after you go through those experiences several times, you realize it's sort of darkest before dawn. And, and there's always something positive on the other side. You always come out the other side stronger than you did going into it. Um, and there's always something good that comes out of even the toughest situation. So that's that's a really important spirit that we have here. Yeah, and, and not and not completely changing your strategy just because you hit a bump in the road. I think we hear that from a lot of you know, folks that we hire that have been in other places for ten or fifteen years, and they do notice the steady hand at the tiller, and they say, "Yeah, it's this place." And every every nine months, there was a different strategy. Like you could never remember, like what's the priority of the month club kind of thing. Like what are we doing now, and why are we changing, and why are we trying that, and you know, can we just let this trot play out a little bit? So I think it's great for the teams to just have a real steady idea of what they're doing and what the goals are. Yeah, that's fantastic. So you, you did mention there were, you know, many troubles along the way. What was, was there like one closest to near death experience that still haunts you? <laughs> like, did you have a moment of uh, that you were like, I, I don't know if we're going to be around next year. I don't know if this is going to work. Well, I, I can answer one on the production side. So I, I kind of oversee the way we divide up the businesses. I kind of oversee the, the, the sort of back end production John's sort of the front end marketing sales facing, but on the on the back end, we had a we had landed a huge program with a huge customer and thought we had the right partner to manufacture it with us. And we sort of stuck with them and stuck with them and stuck with them. And then basically pretty close to the buzzer when the, the first massive POs were supposed to start shipping, realized that that wasn't the right partner. <laughs> so so we basically had to had to jump in and John and myself and with the time was our head designer, we basically just went and had to go, you know, spend every day, all day, you know, at the facility, like working through everything. And we barely had any time to, to get it. And we, we eventually got it through. So it was a kind of a, a miracle that we got it actually produced and shipped. Yeah. Yeah. Were they just, were they not making the product correctly or, or not doing it on time? Well, I, it was a situation where it was one of these things, which you often do in business. And we've, we, we've actually been really successful in developing suppliers to do something that wasn't their comfort zone. So you have to have faith that they're going to get there and you have to kind of help them. And sometimes they just can't do it. And that was a situation where, so we weren't buying what they were sort of normally making. We were trying to get them to pivot a little bit. And they kept saying, sure, no problem, no problem, no problem. And then they kept missing the deadlines and kept missing the milestones. And yeah, yeah. So that, that was pretty, uh, pretty scary time. Oh, got it. Uh, so, so tell me this, this last year and a half has obviously been really, really hard on so many businesses, except this thing happened that no one predicted, which is that 
you know, Americans, many office workers were just stuck in their homes working remotely and looking around at their walls and being bored and buying home furnishings and and doing home remodels. And um, and, and I'm sure that you saw some benefit there. Um, how has the last year and a half really been for business for you? You know, it turned out to be quite good. I think at the very beginning of the pandemic, none of us would have predicted that necessarily. So it looked pretty scary at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all 10 of our stores were closed and, you know, we were still doing business online. Uh, We weren't sure if we'd be able to continue to even keep our fulfillment facility and warehouse open, but we were ultimately enabled to, you know, keep everybody at the company employed, didn't have to lay anybody off. So a couple of months went on, then it started to become apparent that, okay, people are stuck at home. (laughs) They are looking at the ratty old sofa and they're not spending money traveling. They're not spending money eating out. And they're also getting potentially government stimulus checks as well. So feeling flush and wanting to invest in their home. So it was a great, it was a great thing in the end. And I hope it will be an enduring thing in the sense that people had a moment to really understand the value of their home. You know, we're often just before then running around and harried and something's not feeling right in your house. You don't have time to fix it. You just keep moving. But um, it was a good reset, I think. I mean, not just for that. I think for all of us, just a reset in our own lives in general. Yeah, there's a value in your surroundings, right? It does affect It affects a lot of things, um, physical, mental, emotional. Thank you so much, Maurice and John, for joining me today. Christine, thank you. It was our pleasure. speaking with John and Maurice, I was left thinking about the improbability of what they've done and what they've built. Two artists and an architect launching a highbrow style, mainstream and price point furnishing firm, building their own international supply chains, working with producers to push them out of their comfort zones, and having weathered several near failures there, and built a 200-person company that's now lasted decades. I loved that they both seemed to not take themselves too seriously and manage the whole operation with a steady hand on the tiller, as Maurice says. I think part of it is what we got into in depth about how they consciously applied their design thinking to building a sturdy operation and business. And part of it is, as John says, they approached the whole thing with optimism. It's remarkable that while they started the business as friends, they say their friendship has only grown stronger over the years. That, perhaps above all else, shows that the thing they've built is working. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you liked what you heard, we have a really small favor to ask. Please hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening so you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who would love our show, please send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have an idea of a founder you'd love to hear from, drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. You can also let me know on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who is currently handwriting a lot of letters for a new blue dot puff puff velvet ottoman, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.